It is beyond any social acceptable norms. Tonight, protest pushback. What the government is saying about the possibility of bubble zones around schools and hospitals. Plus. Am I allowed to eat in your restaurant if I don't have one of those vaccine cards? We will not be checking for them. Dining in defiance. More restaurants not enforcing the vaccine passport. And final push. Find out which leaders are spending part of this weekend out west. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us tonight. We begin with breaking news. Police in Burnaby are investigating a shooting outside a popular sports arena. First responders could be seen helping an injured man in a side parking lot of Scotia Barn, formerly known as Eight Rinks. RCMP say they got reports of shots fired in the area of Sprott Street and Norland Avenue at about 4.30 this afternoon. They add there is one known victim in the incident, but no word how serious the injuries are. They are asking people to avoid the area as they continue their investigation, but the rink, we're told, is still open. Now to the outrage after anti-vaccine and vaccine mandate protesters caused Salmon Arm schools to go into a hold and secure on Friday. Global News has now confirmed the B.C. government is looking into strong measures, including a possible injunction, so that schools and hospitals are no longer targets of such demonstrations. Amadagahi has the latest. The thing is that they're uh, injecting something into our children. It is still unclear what their real intention could have been. Friday, several people claiming to be opposed to COVID-19 vaccines decided they would disturb a pop-up vaccine clinic, while other protesters walked into schools, forcing staff and students into a hold and secure lockdown protocol. These people are just, they're just completely uh, beyond any sort of social norm when it comes to protest. It's completely just absolutely uh, appalling what they were doing. Police say they had left before officers arrived, but the extent anti-vax protesters have gone to this time seemingly has most people in the province again shaking their heads in disbelief. For these people to interfere in that, I, I think it's just, it's criminal in my mind. At a school, no, that's not, a, I don't approve of that, no. Edit, that's wrong. The result of their actions is heartbreakingly described in a post to Facebook by a school staff member who writes, My job this afternoon was to calm students down because they were nearly in tears, terrified, because they did not know what was going on. After similar demonstrations outside hospitals that at times slowed ambulances and drained already exhausted healthcare workers of morale, the province began having conversations within government about possible safety zones to keep protesters away from places like hospitals and clinics. It now appears schools may need to be added to that list. There may be a, a variety of ways of dealing with them. Uh, for example, uh, uh, trespassing into a school, um, Causing uh, unnecessary aggression and being uh, abusive to people can, uh, can lead to potential charges, for example. There may be criminal uh, activity involved. At the same time, uh, injunction is something that uh, the government uh, is looking at. They would have to decide whether the evidence is there for them to proceed. Former judge and previously a B.C. Attorney General Wally Opel says the province will have to prove in court protesters are disturbing the jobs of nurses doctors and teachers. We all know that these people are offensive and they cause disturbances, but, uh, and there's a lot of gibberish that comes out of their mouths. Question is whether that's enough to 
for a judge to grant an injunction. For now, School District 83 plans to keep security protocols in place at some schools through Monday and says it will work with police to keep future protests off district property. Emma Ragahi, Global News. Confusion still reigns when it comes to the vaccine card and how it may or may not be enforced, particularly at restaurants. As Global's Paul Johnson reports, for some, it appears to be the type of service on offer. A few days into the vaccine passport mandate, are the rules any clearer for British Columbians? Surrey's busy Fresco's restaurant was singled out on social media as one where patrons were not being asked to show proof of vaccination. And indeed, when we walked in to check that out, staff didn't ask to see anything. Hello, table for one, please? Yeah, you just order first. But even with a restaurant full of people of unknown vaccination status, Fresco's isn't doing anything wrong. As the letter of the law specifically says, restaurants that don't have table service or serve alcohol are exempt. Makes sense? This was owner Walter Wolf's take on the rules. Like the big restaurant chain, McDonald's, A&W, White Spot, you know, they don't ask for a pass and they're all my neighbors. Raleigh's restaurant in Hope appears to be a different case, though. A sit-down style place with waitstaff who were allegedly flouting the rules because they think they're unfair. Uh, that's up to them, I guess, the business owner. Oh, hi, is this Brogan's? Yes, it is. And Langley's popular Brogan's Diner had this to say when we called and asked if we'd need a Vax passport to eat there. Hey, I just wanted to be clear. Am I allowed to eat in your restaurant if I don't have one of those vaccine cards? We will not be checking for them. Brogan's rationale for not asking wasn't clear. And for many, the bigger question is, what is the epidemiological reason for why indoor dining where there's no wait staff is presumably safer and doesn't require proof of vaccine? You know, nobody explained to me, not even five cents, what, what I can do. As a 50-year veteran of the restaurant business in B.C., if Wolf is confused by the rules, no doubt many other owners are, and likely customers as well. In Surrey, Paul Johnson, Global News. A deadly COVID-19 outbreak at a Victoria long-term care home is now over, according to Island Health. The outbreak at the Salvation Army's Sunset Lodge was declared on August 27th after three staff members tested positive. At the time, the risk was deemed low. Six residents have since died, and a total of 15 staff members and 21 residents got the virus. Health officials say, with prevention strategies in place, all results from recent follow-up testing of staff and residents have come back negative. Well, almost three months after the village of Lytton was destroyed by a raging fire, one community leader says there is growing frustration over access to the homes lost and no sign of interim housing. But as Kristen Robinson reports, the province says recovery work is happening behind the scenes. The whole village is going. Residents had just minutes to flee when flames roared through Lytton June 30th. And many haven't been able to return to take stock of what's left. People are really angry, they're frustrated, they're hurt. With help from the relief organization Samaritan's Purse, Edith Loring Kuhunga was able to visit the remains of her home in downtown Lytton. Volunteers managed to salvage her First Nations jewelry and her husband's coins. 
but she says others are still waiting to see their properties. And we're like, what is going on? Why can't people after almost three months be able to go visit their homes? With evacuees scattered across the province, Lauren Kuhanga says viewing this is a critical part of closure for those trying to rebuild their lives. BC's premier says there are significant toxins from the fire that destroyed the village, and the province is working with the Fraser Basin Council to get temporary housing in place. I understand their frustration, but we need to make sure that the town site is safe before we move people back in. Uh, a lot of work is being done behind the scenes. The village of Lytton is posting updates on its website. Residents who would like to sift through the rubble of their homes have until Monday to register with Samaritan's Purse, which has completed more than 40 work orders in Lytton. Like that's almost like the last bit of hope that a lot of people have is holding on to that, waiting to go visit their property. Community members, she says, are meeting virtually Sunday to discuss how to move forward. Kristen Robinson, Global News. A judge has temporarily extended an injunction against old growth logging protests on Vancouver Island. The injunction prohibits protesters from blocking access to areas licensed to Teal Jones for logging. Protesters accused the company and police of using extreme measures to keep roads and other areas clear. It was set to expire a week tomorrow. Teal Jones was in court this week asking for a one-year extension. The judge said it will be a matter of weeks before he can deliver a decision. Until then, the injunction will remain in place. So far, 1,043 people have been arrested at the Ferry Creek blockade, including 23 on Friday. A stabbing in Vancouver's Chinatown this morning sent a 33-year-old man to hospital. Vancouver police say the assault happened just after 7 o'clock at Hastings and Gore. It's believed a man got into a dispute with three others, possibly over money. He was slashed in the face with a knife and his bike, backpack and cane were taken. His injuries are said to be non-life-threatening. Police say there have been no arrests, but one man was spotted at the scene in handcuffs. Surrey RCMP seized two guns and fentanyl during a raid on a home near Bear Creek Park last weekend. A 9mm semi-automatic handgun and fully automatic carbine rifle were found in a basement suite back on September 11th. Police were tipped off after someone connected to the home discovered drugs in the suite. Surrey RCMP seized more than 3,500 doses of what's believed to be fentanyl. Saanich police are looking for a suspect after a woman was sexually assaulted on the Lockside Trail earlier this month. Investigators say the victim was walking north near Swan Street between 7.30 and 8 at night on Monday, September 6th, when the suspect approached her from behind. He's described as a white man, about 30 to 40 years old, 5 foot 6, with a stocky build, long sandy beard, light-colored toque, pink shirt and blue jeans. The suspect was carrying a dark backpack as well as a duffel bag at the time. A heads up for travelers starting on Monday. People driving between B.C. and Alberta will be facing a big detour. Construction at the Kicking Horse Canyon will close the Trans-Canada Highway for 24 hours a day, most days, until December 1st. According to the Transportation Ministry, the last phase of the project is complicated and extended closures are necessary. Traffic will be detoured via highways 93 and 95, which will add about an hour and a half of travel time. Check the construction calendar online for details. 
Coming up, full stream ahead. We'll show you the massive effort to safeguard spawning salmon in the middle of Burnaby. Plus, just to return this stuff, just the drawers and stuff, that would be great. Good news for a BC teen who had her priceless antiques stolen. That story later on tonight's News Hour. Welcome back. In Victoria, five people have been arrested after that city's police chief was assaulted during a memorial at the B.C. legislature today. Police say Victoria Chief Delmanic was approached from behind while attending a memorial honoring Chantel Moore. A woman allegedly poured a liquid on the chief. Manic was not harmed and had been invited by Moore's mother. Officers in the area then approached the suspect. A group then surrounded the suspect and surrounded the officers before five people were taken into custody. It is not believed the suspects were involved in the memorial. Moore was a 26-year-old Indigenous woman who was shot and killed by an Edmonston, New Brunswick police officer who was called to do a wellness check on June 4th of 2020. World Rivers Day will be marked next weekend, and the man behind the big day is also celebrating a major step forward in a decades-long effort to bring a little creek in Burnaby back to life. Julia Foy has that story. It's impossible for fish to move up it. BC Rivers Day founder Mark Angelo is exploring the dry riverbed of a section of Gishon Creek on Burnaby's BCIT campus. All the fish out here were netted and they're being held as being held aside. <laughs> its waters diverted in preparation for a massive improvement project. The culvert that's been in place for the last five decades, it's too steep, too small. There's about a three foot drop at the bottom end of it and fish can't move through it. After two years of planning, the city of Burnaby is working on a multi-million dollar project to replace four culverts along Gishon Creek. The culvert has been eroded over time. There's water seeping underneath. There's potential for erosion of the road itself in the future. And it's also undersized for uh, even the existing storms that we're seeing now. The project is in a race against time. Certain windows with wildlife and environmental factors, so salmon spawning season has a uh, like an eight-week period where you're allowed to do work on streams. How much do each one of those cement blocks weigh, do you think? Uh, about 15 tons. <laughs> That's a lot of weight. That's why you've got the really big crane yeah. here today. Yeah. This is the latest step to help bring back life and salmon to the creek. When we first started working on Gishon Creek, it was in a, a terrible state. It had been dredged, it was polluted, stripped of streamside vegetation. Fifty years later, the creek is alive with fish and wildlife. On Rivers Day, September 26th, a documentary on Angelo called The Last Paddle will be screened at the Van City Theatre. It will feature rivers from around the world. But it will begin with a nod to Gishon Creek. Little streams like this, I think, add so much to the quality of life that we enjoy in our communities. And the bottom line is, they make our communities better places to live. So I think we have to do everything we can to properly care for them. Julia Foy, Global News. It is World Cleanup Day, and volunteers on BC's South Coast are launching the first-ever Traveling Environmental Art Campaign. Divers are pulling trash out of the water off North Vancouver shipyards during Phase 1 of Diving In, the Art of Cleaning Lakes and Oceans. 
The Sea to Sky Arts Council Alliance is partnering with environmental organizations to promote responsible recycling. Crab traps, bottles, cell phones, shopping carts and chairs are among the items recovered. Volunteers will turn the garbage into art pieces before touring schools to raise awareness about reducing marine waste. The message is that our waterways are incredibly precious. We can't keep throwing things in there because they poison our ecosystems and it's, uh, it's unsustainable for everybody. Because when people throw something in the water, they think it disappears. It doesn't disappear and we're proving that today. For the Slaughtered people, our creation stories evolve, come from this ocean. And it's up to us to be stewards of that water, to be stewards of the land, and just really try to take care of Mother Earth, and Mother Earth will be able to take care of us. Just ahead on the news hour, a rally for the rioters. Why Trump supporters went to the scene of January's chaos on Capitol Hill. And the frustrated Canadians who say they can't vote on Election Day because they've recently tested positive for COVID-19. For the party leaders, it is the final push before Election Day. The Conservatives and Liberals spent a second day in Ontario targeting key ridings, while the New Democrats campaigned across the prairies before arriving in B.C. tonight. Miranda Anthesil reports. We have taken extremely seriously the importance of um, supporting survivors, supporting and listening to anyone who comes forward with allegations. It's the final hours before Election Day, and the Liberals have lost another candidate due to allegations of misconduct. Kevin Vung's campaign was put on pause Friday after a Toronto Star report revealed the Toronto candidate faced a charge of sexual assault in 2019. It was dismissed, and Vung has called the accusation unequivocally false. But the Liberals are now dropping him as a candidate. Trudeau grilled on how the vetting process could have missed this. We will continue to make sure we're standing on the right kinds of processes and, yes, improve on our processes uh, when uh, there are challenges that come forward that show that we haven't uh, gone far enough or that we haven't been strong enough. The Liberals took two days to decide to, to release or to get rid of this candidate. It should have taken no more than 20, it shouldn't have even taken 20 minutes. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, who has said that he himself is a survivor of sexual abuse, believes Trudeau has failed to protect women, from the sexual misconduct crisis in the Canadian military to the most recent handling of allegations against a candidate. There is a pattern of behaviour here where Mr Trudeau does not believe women. He does not, he doesn't have the courage to take on powerful men. Two other Liberal candidate seats are also open. Raj Saini, who ended his campaign earlier this month after facing allegations of harassing a female staffer, which he denies. And Marwan Tabara, who isn't seeking re-election. The former Liberal stepped down from caucus last year after facing several charges, including assault and break and enter, none of which have been proven in court. Both these seats are in southern Ontario, which is where the Conservatives are campaigning. This is the only hand I can shake in this election. <laughs> Unlike Singh, Tory leader Aaron O'Toole was not asked about the Liberals' handling of misconduct cases. Instead, he was pushed on his approach to not making vaccines mandatory for his candidates. And we've made it a policy that vaccines, rapid daily testing, and all of our team members will use all these tools to make sure we campaign in a way that's safe, in a pandemic election that Justin Trudeau called. We should not be in an election. Miranda Anthesil, Global News. 
Now, as for the Greens, their leader was on Vancouver Island today. Enemy Paul visiting B.C. for the first time during this election campaign to lend some last-minute support to two Green MPs hoping to keep their seats. Here's Richard Zussman. A last-minute plea for B.C. votes. There are some of the best Greens, uh, you know, in the whole country living here. Which is two days before Election Day, Green Party leader Annamie Paul finally touching down in British Columbia for the first time. Met by supporters in Victoria and flanked by candidates, including former leader Elizabeth May. It's a great time to show up and put us over the top. Pushing the Greens over the top may be heavy lifting. This trip was planned last minute, and criticism has been growing. The Green Party leader hasn't been in the province until now. This trip could be the boost needed. To actually have the leader come out here is big. To actually have her there with Paul Manley, who's quite frankly, in the fight of his political life, you know, this, is, this helped. The party received more than 8% of the vote in 2015. That ballooned to 12.5% in the 2019 federal election and two seats, including both Paul Manley in Nanaimo Ladysmith and May. But public opinion polls now have the party around 6% province-wide this time and without candidates in many ridings. It is a struggle for the average person to be really um, able to understand the difference between a true climate plan uh, and a climate plan that really is just a mirage and one that we've called smoke and mirrors. A big show of green support in Victoria for Paul, but noticeably absent the two green MLAs, Sonia Firstno and Adam Olson. Also absent, Andrew Weaver. The former leader this time around is supporting Justin Trudeau and the Liberals. I respect him, but I respectfully disagree with him on this. Adam and Sonia had commitments today, but they were absolutely wishing they could get here. Paul also describing the Liberal climate plan as snake oil, hoping her trip produces the real thing. Victory! Holding on to two island seats and adding more for the party. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. In Washington, D.C., police in riot gear and National Guard soldiers were on high alert today for what organizers called the Justice for January 6th rally. The demonstration was in support for those prosecuted for the attack on the U.S. Capitol and demanding justice for a protester killed that day. As Jennifer Johnson reports, organizers called for peace, but police were ready for any possible violence. About 200 demonstrators, much fewer than expected, descended on Capitol Hill in support of rioters arrested after the January 6th attack. But it was a completely different scene than the violent storming of the Capitol eight months ago. Still, many are angry. For those people who came in that Capitol building, instead of calling them terrorists, why don't you find out why they breached the Capitol? Why they were so desperate to cling on to Donald Trump? Organizers and even former President Donald Trump call those arrested after attacking the Capitol political prisoners. We believe that the reason these people are being persecuted isn't because of what they did, but because of what they believe, and that's wrong. On Friday, Trump sent another letter to Georgia's Secretary of State demanding he declare Trump actually won the election. Trump supporters still believe Biden is not the legal president. It was all fraud. Anything done under fraud is fraudulent and it should be thrown out. Since the 2020 election, the Capitol has become a magnet for attempted violence, including a day-long bomb threat and standoff last month. Many lawmakers hope as the Trump years fade away, so will the protests. Jennifer Johnson, Global News, Washington.
In Health Matters tonight, a new review of existing data about COVID-19 suggests it is rare for children to experience symptoms beyond three months. Australian researchers analyzed more than a dozen studies involving nearly 20,000 children and adolescents with persistent symptoms. The most common lingering symptoms four to 12 weeks after infection were headache, fatigue, sleep disturbance, difficulty concentrating, and abdominal pain. Doctors are more likely to prescribe painkillers to white patients compared to black, Hispanic, or Asian patients who are complaining of back pain. That is according to a UCLA study of medical claims from 2006 to 2015 during the early days of the opioid crisis. The study's author says it is possible some doctors believed patients of color were more likely to misuse opioids, even though data shows that is not the case. Researchers say it shows how medical treatments can be unequally based on race and ethnicity. Another big donation from one of B.C.'s most generous philanthropists. Earlier this week, business icon Jimmy Pattison made a $4 million matching donation for upgrades to the 10-year-old Surrey Outpatient Care and Surgery Centre that already bears his name. The money will go towards purchasing critical diagnostic equipment. Health care has been a favourite cause of Pattison over the years. It doesn't matter what colour you are, how old you are, or young you are, uh, sooner or later, all of us seem to need at some time or another some help. And so we think that's probably a good place to support is where we can help the most amount of people. Pattison donated $5 million to the centre when it first opened in 2011. Since that time, the facility has provided care to more than 3 million patients. We're not done with the rain. Meteorologist Devon Shell's forecast is next. Plus, comeback of the cookie canvassers. COVID crumbled their sales routine, but now the girl guides are getting ready to resume a favorite tradition. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. Mint, chocolate, or vanilla? Everyone has a favorite, but one of those cookie flavors will not be offered by the Girl Guides this fall. We'll tell you which one right after Yvonne's forecast. But first, sightings of the giant Asian hornet continue just south of the border. This might look like a helicopter at first glance, but it's believed to be a murder hornet. The photo is a bit blurry, but the Washington State Department of Agriculture says the size, colors, and shape of that flying insect are consistent with the giant hornet. What's more concerning, this is the farthest east the bee-killing insect has been spotted. The agency is also preparing to eradicate a third confirmed nest. Problem is, this one is six meters up a tree. Specialized equipment will be brought in over the next week to kill the murder hornets. All right, let's check in with meteorologist Devon Shell. We had a stormy night, but not a bad day today. Yeah, we had a bit of a reprieve, depending on where you were across the south coast. We're actually tracking some active weather at this hour, depending on where you are. We are looking at some thunderstorms. We've spotted some lightning, and there are intense downpours. The tower cam, this one overlooking English Bay. We're sitting at 16 degrees. We've got some lightning, thunderstorms reported out of the airport. And here's a quick glance at the satellite and radar. So the blue is showing us the lightning, and this is over the last two hours up until now. And we're seeing a heavier wave of 
rain just across the airport at this point and pushing its way in towards the Fraser Valley. Similar with some instability right across the island, we could still see some lightning for the evening hours and we're tracking that in towards the interior with much of the southeastern corners as well as the central interior seeing lots of instability and that's the big weather story that we're going to continue to follow. It'll be quite similar as we get in towards our Sunday and then long range we've got some breaks in there before we see the next weather making weather maker moving its way on shore. Now here's a quick glance as we get in overnight tonight some heavier pockets as well. Tomorrow morning it's a chance of showers but then approaching the afternoon is when we'll see that risk of thunderstorms and right across the board the central and southern half of the province all areas and towards the interior we'll be looking at the risk of thunderstorms. Once we get past tomorrow though we've got a bit of a break in between systems and then it'll be a Monday the next weather maker is going to take an aim. Heaviest rainfall will be along the north and central coast, and it could clip the northern tip of Vancouver Island. The northern half for tomorrow will be on and off showers with that heavier wave of rain moving in on Monday. It's inland that we do have that risk of a thunderstorm. It'll be similar for all areas across the central interior. A cooler day tomorrow for the southern half of the province with that instability. Areas in the central Okanagan just seeing highs up to 14 degrees. Whistler tomorrow with highs up to 12. So we are going to see lots of instability right across Across the board for the south coast. Chance for some showers uh, as early as the morning hours and then that risk of a thunderstorm is going to pop up. Highs will be anywhere between 17 cooler for eastern areas and stretching into the Fraser Valley just up to 15 degrees. So we've got still thunderstorms for the early evening hours tonight. Tomorrow we'll see it for the afternoon and early evening. Some of the nicest day of the bunch so far will be Monday, Tuesday. Sunny temperatures even up to 21 degrees. First day of fall we'll be tracking a storm and a cool one with highs up to 16. Jordan. All right. Thanks for the Savon. After a challenging 18 months, Girl Guide cookies are back with a new hybrid sales model. The fall 2021 cookie campaign kicked off from the Girl Guide's cookie warehouse in Delta today. We're keeping the exact location secret for obvious reasons. When the pandemic crumbled door-to-door cookie sales in March 2020, the Girl Guides relied on retailers for shelf space to sell their cookies and online sales. This year, the guides will resume door-to-door sales and sell in public. The classic chocolate and vanilla sandwich cookies will be delivered across B.C. this weekend. Online sales will return October 1st, and there will be no mint. The mint we would normally sell um, in the fall, and we would typically sell our classic chocolate and vanilla in the spring. Because of the impacts of COVID and just because of the ordering process, we decided to sell classics in this fall campaign before returning to our regular calendar for 2022. Okay. I'm going to miss the mint. My favorite is mint. What about you guys? Yeah, I'm, I'm the chocolate and vanilla, but it's good. It's not that it's never coming back, just not for this round. Right. right? We can wait. Not we fussy. can be patient. Not yeah. fussy. I'll, I used I'll to sell them really door to door. Did you? Yeah. As a kid, <laughs> I used to sell them. I was part of Brownies. Just a few years ago. Yeah, it was just long. a couple of years <laughs> yeah. ago, door to door. Actually, I yeah. think I remember you. Yeah. You look familiar. <laughs> you bought five boxes. I remember Barry. <laughs> yeah, I'm a good customer. Yeah. It sure is. All right, Barry, what's coming up in sports? Lions on the road tonight? Yeah, they're uh, almost finished up in Montreal. Kind of a quick game going on. Lions are leading late, so we'll have highlights of that. And uh, Rugby Sevens going on at BC Place, both the men's and women's teams uh, in action, so highlights of that as well. All right, see you in a few minutes. Thanks. Also coming up on the news hour, they want to vote but can't find out why some Canadians recently diagnosed with COVID-19 feel Elections Canada has dropped the ball. Welcome back. A North Okanagan man recently diagnosed with COVID-19 says he's unable to vote in Monday's federal election. Dennis Contos of Salmon Arm tested positive for the virus on Wednesday after the mail-in ballot deadline had closed. 
He says Interior Health and his local MP were unable to help or give him any options on what to do. Because it's everybody's constitutional right to vote. In my case, it's only me. There's literally thousands of people across the country that are going to be in the same boat as I am if we got diagnosed before election day on Monday. Elections Canada says its hands are tied as the laws in place prevent any changes. As Global's Nicole Stilger reports, an Alberta woman in the very same situation feels there should have been more options. I was frustrated. Like many Canadians, Christine Radke believes there's a lot at stake this election. I think this one is a really important for everybody. But on Wednesday, she and her family all tested positive for COVID-19. So the Morinville resident called Elections Canada to see if there were any options to cast her ballot on Monday, but was told no. There's nothing we can do. You have to follow the protocol and you have to isolate and unfortunately miss the um, mail-in ballots. Radke says she would have voted earlier, but was still undecided. She feels there should have been more options for circumstances like this, considering the timing of the election. There's a lot of people, it's just not me, that aren't going to be able to vote. And um, I'm just one, but you put one, 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 and there's a lot of people. I still think I have a right to, to vote. Elections Canada says it's unfortunate, but it has to follow the legislation and only Parliament can make changes. After September 14th, electors who have or believe they have COVID-19 and who have not already applied to vote by mail will be out of voting options. I've done my part. I've, you know, I've been vaccinated. I'm trying to protect everybody, wear masking um, and, and following and eating medical professionals. Um, and now I can't vote. It just frustrates me. A tough pill to swallow for Radke and likely others who understand the importance of public health but now have to forfeit their vote. I think something can be done. Nicole Stilger, Global News. Sports is next on tonight's News Hour and also coming up. Could you ever imagine this being the result? No. The big surprise for a teen entrepreneur who had her stuff stolen. Be part of the CIBC Run for the Cure. On October 3rd, join Canadians from across the country as they join the Reimagine Run to be a force for life in the face of breast cancer. CIBCRunForTheCure.com for details. Head to the North Point of Canada Place for World Maritime Day. Enjoy live music, performances, safe and distance fun activities, all to recognize the importance of maritime security and the marine environment. For RBC, I'm Michael Newman. If you want to know, it's on the house. If you want to show, it's on the house. If you want to go, it's on the Global BC Community Hub. Navigate your now. All right, as we mentioned earlier, Lions in action right now, and Barry's here with sports. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Jordan. You know, the Lions have won a couple in a row, but both of those wins came against a very bad Ottawa Red Blacks team. Today on the road, a much stiffer test as the Lions took on the Alouettes, one of the few teams in the CFL to show an explosive offense this season. Michael Riley, four touchdown passes last week versus Ottawa, opening drive. Picking up where he left off, Riley with the short pass here to Lucky Whitehead, who has quickly become a favorite target, along with uh, Brian Burnham. Lucky does the rest, 27-yard gain. Lions on the move into Montreal territory, and on third and one, they go for it. So Nathan Rourke, the backup, comes in. Instead of doing the uh, sneak, which everyone always does, he takes it to the outside and goes 17 yards to take it inside the five. Great play by Rourke, and that sets up this 
pitch out to James Butler, who takes it in for the touchdown. Yes, the Butler did it. Lions, 77-yard TD drive to start the game, led 7-0 after one. Second quarter, now 7-3. Riley going deep to Lucky Whitehead one more time. And this time, Lucky is not stopping, taking it all the way to the end zone. 75-yard touchdown, 14-3 Lions. Whitehead three catches, 111 yards in the first half. 17-12 Lions at the break. Lions defense bending but not breaking. Five field goals allowed. Pressuring Vernon Adams who escapes. But then Adams, poor decision to throw it back against the grain over the middle. That's almost always picked off. Bo Lacombo does it there. Lions hanging on to a 17-15 lead. This isn't good. Fourth quarter, Chris Rainey punt return. His leg gets caught there, and he is carried off the field, done for the night. But the Lions get some cushion. Michael Riley zips it to Keon Hatcher. Second touchdown in two CFL games for Hatcher. 24-15 at that point. 27-18 Lions in the final second. So they will win and go to 4-2. and two. HSBC Rugby Sevens from BC Place. Four women's teams, 12 men's teams. All the squads using the tournament as a chance to look at upcoming talent. Canada here in red, taking on the USA. Canada, great start. Emma Chown with her second try of the game. 12-5 Canada, but the U.S. took over from there. Kayla Kinnett with the nice move here in the try as the U.S. wins it 22-12. Canada also lost 19-5 to Great Britain, but they did beat Mexico 39-0. So 1-2 and two is Canada's record after three games on opening day. On the men's side, Canada also with the young squad taking on Germany in their first game. And Victoria's Brennig Prevost, just 23. Great little shimmy move here and takes it in for the try. Canada beat Germany 24-5 in its opener. And then next up for Canada, they uh, took on the Chileans and uh, they were pumped up. Abbotsford's Jake Teal will take the pass in stride here and he is gone. Steamrolls in for the try and uh, extra style points, I think, here for the touchdown. He's uh, all pumped up to play in front of friends and family at BC Place, late Canada is down two, but Vancouver's Phil Brenna doing the heavy lifting, flips back to UBC's Matthew Persilier, takes it in for the try. Canada wins it 19-14 to to go to 2-0, and and they're just about to play the USA in their final game of the day. Canucks rookie camp continues at Rogers Arena. Just a dozen players taking part, but for Abbotsford Canucks GM Ryan Johnson, it's a great opportunity to get to see these prospects up close and personal. Johnson actually goes on the ice with the players, something you don't normally see from a general manager. I want to feel them. I want to see it. I want to see their emotion. I want to see their habits. I want to see it at ice level. I don't like always being up top, even when I'm watching practices or games, I want to be as low as I can. I want to hear them speak. I want to hear their, their body language on the bench, how they shut the door, all the little things that, that maybe people don't pay attention to. So um, it's important. I want to see how they communicate. I want to see how they take coaching. Uh, I want to see how they execute coaching. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's huge, and it's a big part of building that trust. Uh, there's a lot of that you can't do over the phone or on a Zoom call. I, we need to build trust with these players for them to trust us that we have their best interests. We're going to give them the best opportunity to give themselves a chance to play in the NHL, and that's why it's important to me. 
And Zidane Chara is going back to where it all started. He signed a one-year deal with the Islanders, the team that originally drafted him back in 1996. It'll be the 24th NHL season for the 44-year-old who played last year with Washington. 1,608 NHL games, 13th most in NHL history. He's uh, won the Norris Trophy once, and it was a finalist six times. So Zidane Chara still sticking around. The former Prince George Cougar off to the Islanders on a one-year deal. Baseball, Jays and Twins, Toronto starting the day, a half game back in the wild card. Former Blue Jay in 2015 MVP Josh Donaldson hurting his old team with a two-run homer in the first. He also homered yesterday. 2-0 Twins who beat the Jays 7-3 last night. Jays finally get the offense going in the fourth. Marcus Semien clobbers his 40th home run of the season. That's a career high for Semien, 2-1. Then later with two on, Teoscar Hernandez with a towering fly ball to left. And this one will just clear the fence. Three more RBI for Hernandez, who is third in the majors with 106. 4-2 Jays in the seventh. Bo Bichette, how many times have we seen this? So clutch with the runners on base. And Bo with a RBI single actually scores two. RBIs 94 and 95 for him. Jays lead up to 6-2. And then how about some defense from Bouchette, who will go deep in the hole to rob Donaldson of a hit. Blue Jays win 6-2. Yankees lost. Red Sox won. So Toronto now in the second wild card, a game back of Red Sox for the wild card spot. And they have just 14 more games to go. The Seahawks play their home opener tomorrow afternoon against the uh, Tennessee Titans. The Titans usually win when their big bruising running back, Derrick Henry, has a great game. So to deny that, the Seahawks know they will have to gang tackle the big man who goes at six foot three, 247 pounds. Everybody's involved in tackling, getting him down. You want to see more than one person at a time getting around him. You want to see a big gang of Seahawk bodies just jumping on him and pulling them down, but uh, it's a team effort. We expect all 11 guys to be around the ball uh, constantly. PGA Tour stop in the beautiful Napa Valley in California for the Fortinet Championship. American Jim Knauss, only one top 10 in his 24 career PGA Tour starts. Knauss, Knauss in the birdie at 18, shot 7 under 65. Co-leads at 14 under with Maverick McNeely also looking for his first win. Surrey's Adam Svensson back on the PGA Tour this year, tied 44th at 5 under. Nick Taylor of Abbotsford, 63rd at 1 under. And the LPGA Portland tournament rained out today. They'll try to get in 36 tomorrow. That is it for sports. Jordan, back to you. All right, thank you, Barry. We will be right back with the happy conclusion to a story that struck a chord with many of our viewers earlier this month. Stay with us. It's been an emotional roller coaster for a young Surrey woman this month, particularly after we aired her story about her small antique business being targeted by thieves. The antiquing community quickly moved in to support her. Then this week, a sudden turn of events thanks to a self-described Robin Hood. Kamel Karamali has this NewsHour follow-up. How does it feel? Good. Great. Lyric Kennedy's world is a bit brighter these days. Her stolen goods from her antique business returned. I've never heard in a long, like, ever that 
people bring stuff back after getting robbed. Most importantly, the drawers from the cabinet her grandfather made before he died. I called my grandmother right away and I was just like, oh my god, the drawers are back and um, I was just so excited. But it's been a dark road. We first met Lyric two weeks ago. Thieves had broken into her garage and then ransacked her place of business. The 19-year-old is an antique picker, finding old things and then reselling them for a profit. Thousands of dollars of collectibles stolen. We shared her story and her message to the vintage stealing vandals. Just to return this stuff. Just the drawers and stuff. That would be great. And someone listened. Early Friday morning, masked individuals drove up to their home and dropped off five large bags. Lyric's mom was the first to see the surveillance video. Like, it hit me. They're returning stuff. A quick run outside and a look inside. It was almost all of Lyric's stolen goods. I was shocked. I was gobsmacked. But who were they? They left a calling card. It read, Sorry, young lady. Follow your dreams. Robin Hood. This time, Lyric has a different message. I just want to say thank you for all that. It just made, made me feel a lot better. A happy ending to a heartbreaking story in many ways is like an antique. Rare. The police came back. They were shocked. They said this doesn't happen. People do not return what they've stolen. And valuable, even priceless, to the right person. Just because it means a lot to me. Yeah. Like, just like that there's kind people. Kamal Karamali, Global News. Glad she got her stuff back. That's great. Avon, just after you did your forecast, I was sitting here thinking, are they doing some work on the roof? <laughs> no, it's thunder. Shook the whole building. Yeah, and I could just hear some lightning, uh, some thunder rumbling just above our roof here in Burnaby. A quick look at your five-day forecast. So we are looking at a few thunderstorms popping up right now, working its way east and stretching into the Fraser Valley. We will have the potential once again for tomorrow. So a heads up, lots of instability this evening and through the day tomorrow. Nice break, though, will be Monday, Tuesday, first day of fall, and we've got a storm on the way with lots of rain. All right, and that is tonight's news hour for this Saturday. Thanks for watching. We will all be back at 11 on this stormy night. Hope to see you then. Good night.